they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. It is Terry Barber, Mary Danielle, my faithful bride, is down with the cold that I had. So now it's her turn to take a break. And we're going to be focusing on one great book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. You'll notice this liturgical year, we've been reading a lot of the Gospel of Mark. And so I've been, I'm going to share with you a little course we had from the Augustan Institute on that topic. But the segment of the show today is going to be sponsored to you by Tan Books. Go to vmpr.org and click on the Tan Book logo to shop for all your Catholic book needs. Tan Books by clicking on the logo on our website, vmpr.org. You buy a book from Tan from our website, they give us a little commission back to support vmpr.org. So I appreciate you doing that. So what I want to do is I'm going to read uh, right from an uh, overview of the Gospel of Mark. Many times, if you notice, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. You don't have as many um, long parables that you have in the other uh, books of the Bible on the Gospels. So Mark's Gospel has a curious distinction of being the most neglected of the four Gospels in Christian history. I didn't realize that. Overall, 2,000 years, yeah. Little was done to educate its message for centuries after it was written, partly because it was not the work of the one of the 12 apostles, and partly because it was viewed as an abbreviation of the Gospel of Matthew, a much longer version, which was the most popular gospel in ancient church. Did you know Gospel of Matthew was? Well, now you know today. Little things like that are just wonderful. All right. Thankfully, the long-standing neglect of the second gospel is being corrected in our day. Mark has been thrust into the limelight and given unprecedented attention in modern times. We think about it ever since the Second Vatican Council when they renewed the, the liturgical liturgy and, you know, you got a lot more Bible reading at Mass. And deservedly so. Mark's account of Jesus brims with energy, urgency, and I might add, mystery. Far from being an artless uh, abridgment of Matthew or a book with no unique contributions, Mark presents a fresh and dynamic account of the story of Jesus that is all his own. That's why I recommend for Lent that we should consider reading the Gospel of Mark. I think it's a great idea. Now, so who is Mark? That's a good question. And where did he get his information about Jesus? Good questions. Early Christians' tradition agrees that Mark was a missionary companion of the Apostle Peter and Paul. The author of the Gospel is thus identified with Mark, mentioned in the letters of Peter. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And other parts of the Bible, like Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, 
So with John, Mark, and in the book of Acts, whose mother offered her home in Jerusalem as a gathering place for the earliest Christian community. Remember, that was right in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, 12, 17. Outside the New Testament, several of the early church fathers, now this is really fascinating, folks. Always the fathers of the church are fascinating. They tell us that Mark served as a translator for Peter as he was spreading the Christian message in Rome. According to this tradition, Mark's gospel is essentially the oral preaching of Peter, captured in writing. Bet you hadn't heard that before. Wow. That's fascinating. It is the story of Jesus as seen through Peter's eyes. No doubt, this connection with the foremost apostle was a major factor in the church's decision to include Mark among the four canonical gospels. I'll continue, but just remember the church is the one who identified the inspired word of God. And in the Council of Hippo and Carthage in 393 and 397 AD, that's where this canon was put together. And, you know, when people, especially my Protestant brothers and sisters, they go, oh, yeah, this is uh, the gospel. How do you know it's the gospel? Because of the Catholic Church. And um, this is important that you can bring up to your friends. According to this tradition, Mark's gospel, again, is essentially the oral preaching of Peter captured in writing. It is the story of Jesus as seen through Peter's eyes. I really think that's important to really realize that, no doubt, this connection with the foremost apostle was a major factor in the church's decision to include Mark among the four canonical gospels. Now, the tradition that traces the origin of the second gospel to Mark, and ultimately back to Peter, coheres well with the profile of the author that emerges from its pages. I'll give an example. For instance, it is clear from the content of the book that the Gospel of Mark was written by someone who was familiar with Jewish purity and concerns in the land, in the land of Israel. Who knew the Jewish scriptures? and the ancient Jewish techniques used to interpret them, and who was able to translate Aramaic expressions for a Greek-speaking audience. All that was done, and you have scripture verses for showing that. Likewise, Mark's gospel is so full of vivid and picturesque details that more than one scholar has surmised that is, the author derived his information from an eyewitness who had seen and experienced Jesus at close range. Well said. Similarly, one finds internal clues within the gospel that lend credence to the tradition that Mark wrote for the Christians in Rome. But you didn't know that. There are hints. For example, 
that Mark's original readers were unfamiliar with the Palestinian culture, sitting of Jesus' ministry, his explanation of Jewish customs, and the expressions suggest that his readers were mainly Gentile Christians. His references to Roman system of timekeeping and his attempt to clarify the value of currency used in the Eastern Mediterranean world by relating it to a well-known Roman coin. That's in you know Mark chapter 12, verse 42. All this is documented, pointed in the same direction. His use of Latin loan words in the gospel also implies an audience who had some knowledge of the Roman tongue in addition to Greek. And these are right from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, 12, you know, they're all the 15. These observations do not make a Roman setting of the Gospel of Mark established certainly, but together they support the historical possibility of the church's early traditions. Now, Mark's account of Jesus is full of mystery. Isn't that beautiful? The man from Nazareth appears as one bearing secrets that are made known only to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. This is chapter 4 of Mark. He possesses riddles that invite critical reflection. Yeah. He acts in unexpected ways that mystify and sometimes offend. He foretells the future in highly symbolic language that can be decoded only through deep understanding of Scripture. This is right from Mark chapter 13. Isn't it fascinating, the Gospel of Mark? I love this. The outside of the story of Jesus is visible and audible to everyone. But the inside of the story calls for careful discernment. Much that Jesus says and does in Mark is met with incomprehension, even on the part of his closest disciples who struggle to make sense of it, of it all. Mark chapter 6 and chapter 8. Mark's gospel has thus been called a apocalyptic book. It is written to unveil mysteries, to reveal things long concealed. It invites us to see what cannot be seen with the naked eye. The ultimate goal of salvation history, which is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you loving this? I am. We're going to continue on this overview of the Gospel of Mark since this is the year the church is having us read the Gospel of Mark. You're listening to the Bible with the Barbers. I'm pinch hitting for Mary today. We've all had bad colds, but we're making it. Stay with us, family. We'll be back after a quick break.
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back. Terry Barber filling in for my faithful bride who's under the weather. And this segment of the show is going to be brought to you by Charity Mobile. So when shopping for a phone company, why not choose one that's pro-life? Of course, call 877-474-3662. Mention Virgin Most Powerful Radio to support the show. And they will they will support us, which is kind of nice. So I thank you for that. Now we're taking, just for those who just tuned in, we've been reviewing an overview of the Gospel of Mark. Well, why are we doing that? Because this is the year that we use Mark in the three-year cycle of the Catholic Church. And so this overview is taken from the St. Augustine Institute booklet called The Gospel of Mark with Meditations. And I just wanted you to have a, a real good grasp of the Gospel of Mark, where it came from, what's, what's unique about it. And um, I'll continue. One mystery that towers above all others is that secret of Jesus' identity. On one hand, the humanity of Christ is obvious in Mark. Jesus is a man who prays, right? You think about the Gospel, chapter 1 of Mark. Uh, he sleeps, chapter 4. Right? He suffers for emotional distress, chapter 14. He is viewed by those around him as a rabbi. That's chapter 11 in Mark. A prophet, chapter 8. And even as Israel's Messiah, in chapter 8. On the other hand, Jesus says and does things that exceed the abilities of a mere mortal man. He forgives the sins of people unknown to him. That's in the Gospel, chapter 2. He wields the power of to calm storms. Chapter 4 covers that. He treads upon the waves of the sea. Yeah. Chapter 6, it's there. He transfigures his appearance with his heavenly, heavenly glory. That's chapter 9. These actions move onlookers to ask probing questions such as, Who can forgive sin but God? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 4 of Mark, you know. Mark's interest in unveiling the hidden identity of Jesus is evident in the opening verses of the gospel. Remember, it says, In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. This one sentence provides an encapsulated outline of the whole gospel. Mark's entire story revolves around the revelation of Jesus' Messiahship, at Christ and the Divine Sonship. The first half of the book of Mark builds up to Peter's confession when he says to Jesus, You are the Christ. This is chapter 8. And the second half of the book builds up to the Roman centurion's confession when he stands before Jesus and declares, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And that's chapter 15 of Mark. 
So the two titles given to Jesus in the opening verses set the stage for the two confessions that mark the midpoint and the high point of the book. By the beginning, his gospel in this way, Mark gives his readers vital information that is only slowly discovered by the human characters in the story. Not only are readers told at the outset that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, it's chapter 1, but other voices in the book echo and reaffirm, reinforce this claim. Twice we hear God the Father announcing that Jesus is his beloved Son. Once at his baptism, chapter 1, and again in the transfiguration, chapter 9. The demons that Jesus cast out from possessed also know his hidden identity. Yep, and they are forced to acknowledge that he is the Holy One of God and the Son of God. And then think about this in the Gospel. At Jesus' trial... Before the Sanhedrin, the high priest asked the accused, point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? <laughs> this is chapter 14. Jesus responds without hesitation or even a nuance, I am. Mark's gospel is thus punctuated with the key moments of revelation in which the Messiahship and the divine Sonship of Jesus, are openly affirmed. The people around Jesus, however, including his disciples, they struggle to understand, like us. In Mark's view, the disciples need to be healed of spiritual blindness. Boy, don't we all. They need Jesus to open their eyes. This helps to explain why Mark made the healing of the blind man from Bethsaida the preference to Peter's confession of faith in the midpoint of the book. This story is unique in the Gospels for being a two-stage healing. Never really thought about that, have you? Mm -hmm. The first time Jesus lays hands on a blind man, the man responds, I see people who look like trees walking. <laughs> That's chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. His sight is par partially gained, but not completely. It's not until Jesus lays hands on the man a second time that his healing is completed. At that point, we are told he opened his eyes and saw everything clearly. For Mark, the followers of Jesus also need clarity of sight. He grants it in part when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. That's chapter 8. This declaration is true but it remains a partial vision 
of who he really is. There is still much that Peter does not understand, much that remains blurry, especially as it relates to his rejection and death, which the apostles finds objectionable. And that's in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. In other words, Peter sees partially, but not yet completely. It is not until the crucified Jesus pours out his life for many. Yeah, that's when they get the big picture, when the light bulbs turn on. That a human character in the story arrives at the fullness of spiritual vision. It is then that the Roman centurion, witnessing Jesus' death, is moved to confess that the man on the cross is truly the Son of God. That's right from the Gospel, chapter 15, verse 39. This is the final unveiling of Jesus' mystery in the Gospel of Mark. His divine sonship is fully revealed in heroic, sacrificial love. Boy, you talk about sacrificial love, man. You're not kidding. Now, Besides the primary question, who is Jesus Christ? Mark also addresses the pastoral question. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Great question. Mark's gospel, in other words, also gives attention to the theme of discipleship. Jesus' mission in Mark is not simply to die, he also teaches his followers how to live. That's beautiful. This aspect of the gospel, Mark, is brought out in several ways. At the beginning of the story, Mark introduces John the Baptist. Oh, who could forget that? Who came to fulfill the prophetic summons. Prepare the way of the Lord. These words... Cited from Isaiah 40, announced the coming of Jesus as Lord. His mission is to deliver God's people from exile. He is to accomplish a new exodus that delivers them from the bondage of sin and death. For Jesus, this way of the Lord, it's the way of the cross. Way for us to the way that leads to his passion and death in Jerusalem. Yet it is always, yet it is always the way of the disciple who must carry his cross, chapter 8, behind Jesus Christ. Along this way, the disciples are asked to complete the true identity of Jesus Christ. This is right from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. To understand what is required to inherit eternal life, chapter 10. And to be healed of blindness like Bartimaeus, whose gratitude to Jesus was expressed by following him on the way to Jerusalem. This is right from the Gospel of Mark chapter 
10. Discipleship, in other words, is costly. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you're going to pay a price. It cannot be reduced to a cheap affiliation with Jesus. You know, like checkbox. Oh, yeah, I'm Christian. No, no, it's a commitment. Being a true follower calls for hard choices and a firm commitment. The first of this, repent and believe in the gospel. That's right, repentance. We got to have that today because so many people are saying, you don't have to repent. You're in without any repentance. No, that's not the gospel. Jesus opens his ministry with this appeal. Repent and believe in the gospel. I quote that all the time. When I hear people in the church saying, oh, no, everybody goes to heaven. Wait a minute. You got to repent, dude. Now, <clears throat> repent and believe in the gospel is right there in chapter 1. When we come back, we'll continue on some hard-hitting messages of the Gospel of Mark. You're listening to the ter- Yo, you're listening to the Bible with the Barbers. Mary Danielle's under the weather. I just got better, so I filled in for her. Stay with us. I'm loving this overview of the Gospel of Mark. Stay with us, family. We'll be right back. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Absolutely. Terry Barber here sitting in for Mary Danielle today. Uh, this segment is brought to us by the Catholic Resource Center, our, our nonprofit group here. Uh, go to catholicrc.org and explore the entire library filled with inspiring productions on classic Catholic teachings on the Catholic faith. Uh, we've got all these Bible studies by Scott Hahn that are downloadable for you. If you're a $25 a month donor, you get all of it for free. I mean, maybe 30 years ago, you spent thousands of dollars taking these classes. If you didn't, you can get them for $25 or more a month to support us here at VMPR. For those who just tuned in, we've been doing an overview of the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is, Mark is actually... The gospel we're reading for this liturgical year. We have a three-year cycle, and so you're getting a lot of marks. So I thought, well, let's give an overview on it. And we were just talking about the first chapter where the gospel of Mark says, Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, you know, later it's echoed in Mark in the preaching of his apostles in chapter 6. It is a call to turn from our sinful ways by denying our selfish desires. Chapter 8 of Mark taking the drastic steps to cut away from our lives whatever leads us to sin. Now, the second is faith in Jesus. And, and listen to this, and the good news that he proclaims. Only those who hear and accept his word bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And only those who pray with a strong faith in God can expect to receive what they ask for. Other demands of the discipleship include keeping the commandments, praying, fasting, right? Extending forgiveness to others. It's all in the gospel. Serving others, putting their needs before our own, and having the humility and the teachability to receive the kingdom like a child. Isn't that beautiful? 
Perhaps the most sobering side of a discipleship is the prospect of suffering. In Mark, Jesus says directly that his followers can expect persecution, siding with Jesus and the gospel will put disciples in situations that provoke opposition from the authorities and even cause division among the family members. Yep. There will be times when one is tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his words in the presence of others. That's chapter 8 of Mark. These will be difficult times when disciples must give witness to the gospel by relying on the help of the Holy Spirit. But embracing rejection, ridicule, and I might add even death in imitation of Jesus is what taking up one's cross is all about. Chapter 8. Wow. In the end, Jesus acknowledges that the demands of the discipleship are heavy, even human, humanly impossible. Without God, we can't do it. <clears throat> but he assures his followers that they can be victorious over the most daunting challenges because all things are possible with God. The disciples can expect to face storms and rough waters, but they must remember that Jesus is present with them. Chapter 4. Having walked the way of the Lord himself, he shows us that the story ends not with death and fear, but with the resurrection and hope. What awaits the faithful disciple is not disappointment, but eternal life and in the age to come. So I hope that overview of the Gospel of Mark will inspire you for this Lent to read the entire book of Mark. Now I want to give you a reflection. And this is something that, you know, we have the Bible with the barbers always talking about praying with the Scriptures. Well, how do we pray with the Scriptures? This is taken from the Augustine Institute again. We can talk to God at any time because he is our loving father. We all know that. Jesus Christ has pledged to be with us always, even into the end of the age. That's chapter uh, 8, 28 of Matthew. And because the Holy Spirit has been sent to dwell with us, that's Romans, right? Uh, and sent to dwell within us, Yet we all recognize from our own relationship that the better we come to know someone, the more easily we are able to speak with him, right? And if we come to know someone very well, we can even rest in silence with him and be completely comfortable, right? Coming to know God in the scriptures is coming to know more deeply the one to whom we are speaking and to develop a better language for speaking with him. I might add, when you read the Bible, 
if at all possible, reading it before the Blessed Sacrament is an added benefit because you're before our Eucharistic King, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. What a great time to read God's Word in the front of the Blessed Sacrament. Now, the Bible's guidance for our life of prayer is a great gift. After all, it is not always easy to pray or to know how to pray. No, it's true. Even the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And he responded by giving them, what, the Our Father, which is still the first prayer of many of us we learn as children. And it is the prayer that we say together as the people of God every Sunday. The Our Father shows us what we ask for God for. For his name to be first before all else. And we say, hallowed be your name. For his rule to be ours, your kingdom come, your will be done. For our daily needs, both bodily and spiritual. Give us this day our daily bread for forgiveness and the grace to forgive. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and for both bodily and spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So even if you do not think of yourself as someone who prays with scripture in our Catholic devotions through the liturgy, you are already praying with the Bible. Isn't that interesting to know? The way in which the church has traditionally practiced praying with the scriptures and listening for God's voice in them is called Divino Divina, Lexio Vinia, which means divine reading. This practice is traditionally understood to have four stages, reading, meditating, and praying, and contemplating. The first step is the one from which the whole process gets its name carefully, slowly reading the scriptures. So when we read scriptures, take your time. Learning to read in this way takes practice. Doesn't just come overnight, especially in our present time. Unlike scanning an email or a text message, this is calling for a sustained attention, for the savoring of the details, for the turning over the questions and phrases. When you're reading a, a, the Bible and you see the scene, put yourself in the scene. Yeah, take a moment to collect yourself before. You begin reading and to ask God to illuminate your mind as you read. If you find yourself reading too quickly, go back to the beginning and start again. You can ask questions about the passage, remind yourself of the people mentioned, who are they, what are they doing, and search out the meaning of unknown words 
and phrases. Too often, we pass over words with which we are unfamiliar. Notice interesting turns of phrases, images, and so on. It is helpful for you. You could imagine a biblical scene with all the details and place yourself within it. Like I said, throw yourself on a rock watching Jesus coming to give a homily. You know, just listen. By doing careful reading, one is able to move to the next step. All right? So careful reading, meditation. If we take the time to notice the details of a passage, the image it uses or to images ourselves within a biblical scene, deeper questions of meaning will arise. What is the passage really trying to say? What does the passage... Uh, what is the... Pra yeah, it says, what does the passage say? Rather, we are allowing space for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. Now that we have read God's word and meditating on what, you know, um, having something to talk to God about, so the third step will be in prayer, bring to God what you have found in his word. And that's a very important thing. Now that there. So let's do that when we come back from the break. We'll continue to talk about praying the scriptures here on the Bible with the Barbers. Stay with us, family. We'll be right back with more after a quick break. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, Call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. I sure hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, the Gospel of Mark, a re review of it, and how to pray with the Gospels. So now that we have read God's Word and meditated on it, we have something to talk to God about. And so this third step is prayer. Bring to God what you have found in His Word. If you have found something some message thereupon, what you need to act, pray to God for the grace to do so. If you have been perplexed, bring your questions to God, talk it over with him. If you have found some consolation or the sweetness of an insight you did not have before, thank God for it. I get that a lot, man. I read the Bible and I go, I can't believe I read that over and over this is a new insight. This happens a lot because you take your time in reading God's word. Prayer is supposed to be a conversation. And your reading and your meditation will give you some good conversation starters. Yeah. Sometimes in this process, we may feel peace. Like Mary sitting at the feet of Christ and doing the one thing necessary. At another time, we might feel like Job or Jacob wrestling with the angel of God. But such difficult moments come and go in our relationship of love, and we are the stronger for them. The last stage of this is contemplation. Yep, here it comes. 
In plain English, the word meditation and contemplation are very similar. So it may seem difficult to make any sense of the difference between them. But if we think about it, we use these words, meditation, is usually an activity that requires some effort on our part, some concentration, and also an intention. Contemplation, however, is something that can be lost in, as in an expression, lost in thought. That is how these two stages are also distinguished. Contemplation cannot be achieved by any force of our will, okay? But it is God's response to us. It is an experience of being with God that is a gift and that transcends normal human thinking. Contemplation is like being silent in God's presence. That's a good way of saying it. And in complete peace, a moment of rest and love that is beyond words. So, although contemplation is some way defines a definition in word, it is known to be us to some degree by common human experience. We have all had moments of quiet, quiet joy and peace, sure, and love in the presence of our children, our grandchildren, friend or spouse, and they are very difficult to describe. And perhaps we can even recall some such moment in our lives where we felt the way in the presence of God's too. The moments of contemplation may not follow just as we cannot orchestrate those precious moments of love in the human life. But we know that by reading and meditating, right, and praying, we can create the right condition for such a moment to be happy and for us to receive God's grace in it. When we learn to pray with the Bible, this is why Bible with the Barbers, you got to learn how to pray with the Bible, we open ourselves up for conversation with God and allow ourselves to be challenged by his word, which can often be demanding and difficult to understand, but we Catholics do not need to be afraid to pray with scripture and not to avoid it on the account of those difficulties. We can look to the great saints, the doctors of the church, for an example of how to pray and for help in understanding the scriptures. We can attend Bible studies at our parish and be attentive to homilies that expound the word of God. Or you can be listening to the Bible with the barbers every week. There is no one reason to be intimidated by praying with the scriptures. It is the training in humility and exercise in listening to God and a discipline for the entire church. When we think about the gospel of Mark, I think of the world being full of chaos and disorder. 
it's so reassuring to know that God has a plan to deal with sin and evil. Jesus came to announce that this divine plan is now in effect. It is time to repent, time to believe. The first disciples heed the call, dropped their nets, and followed him. We are all called to do the same. I hope and pray that this little meditation we just went through on the Gospel of Mark will inspire you for Lent to read the entire Gospel of Mark. And I also want to encourage us to be praying for Holy Mother, the Church, because we have the Gospels at our fingertips, but are we really getting the message out to people in the sense of repent and believe in the Gospel? Or have we just lowered the bar and said, oh, don't worry about that. You know, it's not going to be a big deal whether you, you know, repent or not. God loves you anyway. That's an unfortunate statement, but I'm hearing it. So let's pray for the church in need right now, that we renew our commitment to love the Word of God and proclaim it in season and in out. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, back then during the storm, on Lake Genariot, you pretended to be asleep to test your disciples, strength and faith and trust. Today, too, the bark of your church is in a violent storm, such as it has scarcely ever withstood. The enemy has penetrated into the church and wants to breach the bark from within so that it may sink O oh Lord, do not sleep. Do not test our fidelity to the faith any longer and look upon our frightened hearts. Stretch out your hand and command the enemy to leave the bark, whose hull he tried to tear open. Accept our pleas and our expiatory commitment and give your angels the strength of a decisive help. Amen. Why do I pray this prayer? Because you know it, folks. We're living in some crazy times where the faith is just not being passed on. And I know that you wouldn't be listening if you weren't serious about your Catholic faith. And so all I could ask you to do is continue to read God's word, stay close to Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament, Continue to have devotion to our Blessed Mother and pray for Holy Mother, the Church, that we will come back with the biblical worldview that says we need to repent and believe and not be so condescending to people who aren't living the gospel and say, repent and believe. Don't, you know, say, oh, God loves you just the way you are. No, he loves you too much to keep you the way you are. If we're living in objective mortal sin, it's the most merciless thing we can do is let someone wallow in their sin. Doesn't that make sense? You know, and then I think about something that Bishop Robert Barron, the Word on Fire, great group to touch base with on Scripture. He said, it is a sign of a corrupt church 
that stops thinking deeply about the truths of Christianity. A church that is against being precise about what it's teaching is, is a corrupt church. So meaning, let's teach the full gospel. I know there are people who don't want to talk about the need for repentance, that somehow God doesn't need you to repent. But that's just not a biblical worldview. And again, look at the perennial teachings of the Catholic faith. If you're confused, get your catechism out. Look up the chapter, verse, whatever you need to look up. It's very clear. Because we have people high in the officials of the church who somehow didn't get the memo that when they were made bishops, they made a promise at the altar, just like my wife and I did, to be faithful to each other. Their commitment is to pass on the deposit of faith. So when a prelate isn't passing on that deposit of faith, he's compromising his promise he made at the altar. And so what I would say is to ask him to go back to his commitment he made when he was a bishop and that I'm praying for you, Bishop. Sounds like, well, you're being kind, you know, what are you saying this to the bishop? Well, because I love the bishop, but he's going to be judged just like I am on everything I say and do. And if I'm teaching something contrary to the church's teaching, please let me know, folks, and I'll change. But we all have to have this attitude. I know just so we do the Bishop Strickland Hour a couple times a week now, and we just go through the catechism of the church. We we talk about the issues of the day, but we're constantly always talking about our Catholic faith and the perennial teachings of the church and what is truth. And so this is why we have to stay focused. Don't get distracted by all the craziness in the world, and I might add even in the church. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. I'm holding a crucifix in my hand. This is who we worship. At your exit interview, and I'll have an exit interview coming quick. I'm in my 60s. Just remember, it's Jesus Christ who's going to judge us. Not Father, not the Bishop, not the Pope. We have to live a Christ-centered life. Even if others aren't living it, we have to be faithful. Ask Jesus Christ for more faith every single day, and your faith will grow, especially in reading the Gospels. Don't forget, the Gospel of Mark for Lent that's my homework assignment. I'm going to read it, and I'm hoping you will too. Wanted to thank you all for your support here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We uh, couldn't do it without you. And again, if you go to our YouTube channel, Full Sheen Ahead, you can check out some nice little short videos. Thanks again, and may God bless you. And up next, the Terry and Jesse Show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.